This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs discuss a massively controversial recent decision of the US Supreme Court in which the so-called conservative supermajority struck down as unlawful affirmative action on the basis of race in university admissions. The case is known as Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and involved two separate cases, one involving Harvard, the other the University of North Carolina. The Whigs discussed the 14th Amendment, the impact of affirmative action, the long-standing legal test for affirmative action as an accepted derogation from the 14th Amendment known as strict scrutiny, and why the majority said the test wasn't met and the practices unlawful. The plaintiff, Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, brought the case on behalf of a group of Asian Americans denied entry to university in the context of affirmative action policies they alleged had worked against them. SFFA describes itself on its website as a, quote, non-profit membership group of more than 20,000 students, parents and others who believe that racial classifications and preferences in college admissions are unfair, unnecessary and unconstitutional. Our mission is to support and participate in litigation that will restore the original principles of our nation's civil rights movement. A student's race and ethnicity should not be factors that either harm or help that student gain admission to a competitive university, end quote. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Mins, and I'm joined by Stephen Lawrence, MLC. Hey, Jim. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Emmanuel Kirkusharian. Hello, Jim. Hello, Emmanuel. Felicity Graham. Great to be back in the studio. It's great to have you all here. Thank you for rushing over. I believe we just want to get into it tonight. Let's get straight into it. Stephen Lawrence. Okay, I'm doing or talking about the recent decision of the US Supreme Court, which held that affirmative action in university admissions is unlawful as a breach of the the equal protection right in the American Constitution. So the case, I think, is known as... There was actually two cases in one, but Students for Fair Admission, Incorporated, and President and Fellows of Harvard. And then uh, that was the first case. The second one involved the University um, of North Carolina. So it was two cases alleging that those two universities had breached the Equal Protection Clause by incorporating race into their admission criteria. They were heard together... There were trials, I think, in what's called the circuit court. Mm. And then they went up to the Supreme Court essentially on a question of law concerned with whether those admission policies breached the equal protection clause. And this only arises because the universities get federal funding. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, so, so I wondered about that because they're private institutions. Yeah, I think that's right. I think yeah. during the exchange or at yeah, th- there was an exchange which said, look, if Harvard wants to go and just give back its federal funding... Privately. Off yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. Apply whatever admissions policy you want to. Yeah. And the yeah. relevant part of the Civil Rights Act at play makes it clear that it only applies to universities that I think are state universities or receive state funding. Which almost all of them do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, And the 14th Amendment is concerned with acts of the state. Yeah. Like it's a, what do you call it, vertical right. A right that protects you from actions of the state, not mm. actions of a citizen, I think. Um, so it was a 6-3 decision, obviously with 
the six conservative justices and the three liberal justices, as they say. The essential question was, does taking into account race in university admission breach the equal protection clause of the US Constitution? Um, I thought I might talk firstly about what the impact of those policies is. And one of the minority decisions sort of states it pretty well, where they said that, quote, eliminating the use of race in admissions would reduce African African-American representation from 14% to 6 and Hispanic representation from 14% to 9 and that was in the Harvard case. So so at trial they did all there was all this evidence about what exactly is the impact of these policies. So that's basically a 45% represent 45% uh, reduction uh, in minority representation if you don't take into account race and they said in the same minority decision, it says one of SFF's A top percentage plans, and SFFA uh, was one of the applicants, so one of the ones in favour of not taking into account race, uh, who won the case. One of SFFA's top percentage plans would even nearly erase the Native American incoming class at the University of North Carolina. So this taking into account of race and what impact it has was a live issue in the case. And the majority tends to, I guess, emphasise how much of an impact it has. And the minority tends, I think, to emphasise that it's just one factor that's taken into account in a holistic test. But those statistical percentages don't seem to be in dispute. So it's obviously a big issue in terms of admission um, of minorities into university in these places. So the process by which race is taken into account... Can I, just before you go on, Steve, one of the interesting things on that is that they had for about 10 to 15 years the admissions into Harvard of uh, African-American and Hispanic students had not changed, Mm. but Asian students had declined. Yeah. Right? So in terms of that kind of statistical analysis, there was this odd anomaly that... For some reason, there was that Asians were being excluded. Yeah, yeah, and that becomes important in the majority's reasoning, where they consider whether this strict scrutiny standard has been complied with yeah. for taking into account race, which is the standard if you're going to derogate from the Fourteenth Amendment. And they point out that you can't just say this is only helping people; it's not hurting people. Uh, And one of the things they say is Asian Americans are obviously being hurt by it. Mm. And they also pick up on, in terms of whether it complies with strict scrutiny, which I'll talk about in a moment, the fact that some of these categories are pretty overbroad. So, for example, Middle Eastern people is not a category. Uh, Asian American as a category doesn't distinguish between East Asian and South Asian. So you're clumping together, for example, you know, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans with Cambodians, Indonesians, you know, et cetera. And I think they don't sort of talk about this in detail, but I think you'd probably find that the demographics socially of those those groups are quite different. Mm. Mm. You know, those countries are obviously quite different. So, yeah, that's interesting, the Asian-American issue. So they talk about at the beginning of the judgment, I won't, won't read it out in full, but they talk about the process by which Harvard particularly takes into account race. And it's basically this multi-step process where 
it's taken into account basically at the beginning and the end of the process, but there's various steps in the process where it's not taken into account. Um, and that's sort of interpreted in different ways by the majority and the minority, with the majority, as I said, sort of focusing on the significance of it and the minority trying to sort of suggest that it's not as significant. But it's worth reading if people look at the judgment, uh, the detail about how it's applied. Mm. So the standard that the Supreme Court found that these policies fall short of, as I said, is the 14th Amendment. That's described this way in the majority judgment. They say, in the wake of the Civil War, uh, Congress proposed and the states ratified the 14th Amendment, providing that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. To its proponents, the Equal Protection Clause represented a foundational principle, the absolute equality of all citizens of the United States politically and civilly before their own laws. Um, the Constitution, they were determined, quote, this is a quote from submissions made in Brown and Education, they were determined should not permit any distinctions of law based on race or colour. So obviously the 14th Amendment doesn't talk about race, mm. but it was passed in the aftermath of the Civil War and was obviously centrally concerned with race. Uh, so the judgments, all of them, then go through how, notwithstanding the very emphatic terms of the 14th Amendment, America fell short of that. And in the education context, for a long time, including in Supreme Court decisions, they tolerated discrimination. Mm. And they basically, uh, they go through decisions of the US Supreme Court where they upheld this idea of separate but equal educational institutions, which I think in truth were never equal, but that's how the the US Supreme Court gave them the tick of approval. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I think in Brown and Education was uh, the seminal case. They struck that down and they said there's no such thing as separate but equal. The very act of dividing education means it's unequal. Um, but US law since Brown has long recognised there will be legitimate exceptions to equal treatment. And as I said, they've developed this test known as strict scrutiny. Uh, under which laws and policies that ostensibly breach the clause will be allowed if they satisfy a two-part test. So firstly, the racial classification uh, or consideration has to further a compelling governmental interest. And then the second part is it's got to be tailored in a way that is necessary um, and narrow to achieve that interest. So it sort of finds residence in our political communication exception. You know, it's got to be tailored mm. and adapted to sort of pick up that language. Um, so outside of this education uh, category, so university admission and so forth, the majority points to only two classes of laws that have been held to meet that strict scrutiny test. So the first is remediating or, quote, remediating specific identified instance of past discrimination that violate. So you can have laws that are seeking in a very direct way to address and reduce past discrimination, but that's not how these laws have been justified. And then the second is avoiding imminent and serious risk to human safety in prisons, such as race riots. And I thought that was interesting because... In New South Wales, we racially segregate in our prisons. Mm. And it's not something that is really talked about much, but as I understand it, it's done for that reason to reduce violence and so forth that arises if you don't. Mm. And I don't think it's done in any sort of a uniform way, but it certainly occurs, I don't know, with what frequency. 
uh, in prisons in New South Wales. So I thought it was interesting that's picked out as one of those exceptions that uh, would satisfy the test. But anyway, in relation to education uh, admissions and criteria, the main authority that this case was dealing with was, uh, was one of Grutter, G-R-U-T-T-R-E. That was a 2003 case, which seems to be the point where in US Supreme Court jurisprudence, they really adopted a majority view, which said that a law or policy will survive the strict scrutiny test if it's premised on the uh, desirability of a diverse student body. And that, as I read it, is the educational desirability. So it wasn't focused on, for example, some broader societal interest around everyone getting educated equally so we have equal professions or anything of that nature or avoiding racial tension through equally educating people. It's more directly focused on that educational interest, that there's something intrinsically highly worthwhile about a diverse student body Mm. because that educates people better and produces better leaders and so forth. So Gruder basically said these laws can survive the strict scrutiny test on that sort of desirable governmental policy. So um, on, on diversity grounds rather diversity than grounds. on trying to ameliorate discrimination. Yeah, correct. And so that first category of strict scrutiny, um, which is premised on, for example, remediating specific identified instances of past discrimination, was not the basis on which Gruder said that these mm. sort of educational policies mm. were justified. That's not sufficient. It's not sufficient, mm. yeah. And I think that's all because it's too indirect I think is the sort of suggestion there's got to be a more direct sort of policy uh, implication to justify the breach, the ostensible breach. I thought the time limit in Gruder and Bollinger was interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So Sandra Day O'Connor, who wrote the leading judgment in there, said the court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. So that was in 2003. So Mm. we're almost 25 years Um, and went on to say this requirement reflects that racial classifications, however compelling their goals, are potentially so dangerous that they may be employed no more broadly than the interest demands. And they go on to say, we'll take the law school in that case at its word that they'll stop doing it. Yeah, yeah. And so 2003 plus 25 is 2008. Sorry, 28. So it's not we're not far off. Yeah, they were asked... Harvard's council was asked, so yep. when do you say? Yeah. When are you not going to have to do this? And they said, Harvard's position is we don't know a date. Yeah. yeah. And they also said that things to the effect of we keep these things under continual review and we'll stop doing it when we don't think there's a need to do it. Yeah. Um, on this premise of it being desirable to have a diverse student body. Mm. Um So going back to the strict scrutiny standard, which uh, was ultimately the test uh, that was applied, the majority seems to, just distilling it, to have had five reasons why it failed the test. And this is coming out of the Chief Justice's judgment uh, that the others agreed with. So the first one was the respondents failed, this is quote, respondents fail to operate their race-based admission programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under the rubric of strict scrutiny. So, for example, Harvard um, and UNC 
uh, put forward interests such as training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge based on diverse outlooks, promoting a robust marketplace of ideas and preparing engaged and productive citizens. And the majority says, while these are commendable goals, they are not sufficiently coherent for purposes of strict scrutiny. It is unclear how courts are supposed to measure any of these goals, or if they could, uh, to know when they have been reached so that racial preferences can end. That was the first reason. Uh, The second one was, quote, second, respondents' admissions programs fail to articulate a meaningful connection between the means they employ and the goals they pursue. And this is where they come to the Asian Americans point. So they say, to achieve the educational educational benefits of diversity, Respondents measure the racial composition of their classes using racial categories that are plainly overbroad, expressing, for example, no concern whether South Asian or East Asian students are adequately represented as Asian, arbitrary or undefined, the use of the category Hispanic, or under-inclusive, no category at all for Middle Eastern students, the unclear connection between the goals that respondents seek and the means they employ preclude courts from meaningfully scrutinising these admission programs. So that's the second one. Third one, respondents' race-based admission systems also fail to comply with the Equal Protection Clause's twin commands that race may never be used as a negative and that it may not operate as a stereotype. And then they basically go on to talk about how, well, people are losing. It's a zero-sum game is one of the expressions used. If some people get in as a consequence and other people aren't getting in... There is something lazy about those two things, isn't there, in sort of using race as a stereotype and not having categories that, you know, like not having Middle Eastern, say, as a category. It's like you don't really know much about somebody by saying that they're in a particular... And we're not even talking about particular races here. Like, for example, you you might know that my background is Armenian. What does that tell you about Mm. me, right? It tells you very little. It doesn't... From that fact, you wouldn't know that my mother grew up in hotels and my father grew up as the son of refugees. And from those facts, you don't know all that much about my upbringing yep. either. And so, what do you what do you really learn from race? But I know, but you know, yes. by the same token, if we and this all depends on the size of cohorts and the population and stuff. But if you make sure there's ten Armenians, people of Armenian background, in every law school course at Sydney Uni then that will have an effect. Yeah, but then the, the, then the categories become the problem, right? Because, yeah. you know, what do you... I don't know. Yeah. Just, yeah. Anyway, it's certainly vexed. So that's the third of the reasons. The fourth of the reason was that they require stereotyping. Yeah. When a university admits students on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that students of a particular race, because of their race, think alike. And this is getting, I suppose, to the assumption in the policy is a diverse student body will benefit people because of X, Y, Z, but that's relying on a stereotype because you actually don't know what any of these people are going to be like oh, that's and so what they're going to bring to it. Yeah. yeah, so that's the fourth. Then the fifth was, which is a point you raised, Manny, the respondents' admissions programs, quote, also lack a logical endpoint as Grutter required. Respondents suggest that the end of race-based admission programs will occur once meaningful representation and diversity are achieved on college campuses. Such measures of success amount to little more than comparing the racial, bra- the racial breakdown of the incoming class and comparing it to some other metric, such as the racial makeup of the previous incoming class or the population in general, to see whether some proportional goal has been reached. The problem with this approach is well-established. Outright racial balancing 
is patently unconstitutional. So is there anything stopping these institutions from quarantining the federal funding and having a particular admissions scheme in respect of that money and then having scholarships that are privately funded for particular eligible candidates to try to achieve diversity? I don't know, but I think what's interesting is they will obviously, and various other institutions are going to be caught by this, so they will now all be turning to their policies and being concerned about their lawfulness. And, you know, what I think, I mean, it might lead to things like that, but it also might lead to more nuanced assessments of social background, what experiences people have had as a consequence of race and how those things can be weighed mm. in in a way that's not directly taking into account race. Mm. Um, it caused or me to think... taking into account race in a particular way, right? Because the... The opinion of the court at the end says, at the same time, as all parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration or otherwise. And then there's a bit of a snipe. It's interesting the way that the the different judgments speak to each other Mm -hmm. in both directions, Mm. you know, um, in a way that you don't really see so much in Australia. But... um, The court goes on in in the majority opinion. But despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. In brackets, a dissenting opinion is generally not the best source of legal advice on how to comply with the majority decision. What cannot be done directly cannot be done indirectly. The Constitution deals with substance, not shadows, and the prohibition against racial discrimination is levelled at the thing, not the name. That's from a case of Cummings and Missouri. And then the opinion goes on. A benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination. Or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Um, And it goes on. I sort of thought this aspect of... Judge Jordan Peterson. The... um, (laughs) The opinion of the court and then the way that Justice Sotomayor dealt with the issues in that dissent kind of brought me to think about the case of William Bugmy in the High Court because that was a case where Steve and I, William Bugmy's solicitors and with um, counsel, argued in the context of what I think is a similar sort of um, overarching principle, which is equality before the law, and how can the, sh- the law ensure equality when there's a reality of difference or inequality? And Justice Sotomayor said, um, today the court concludes that indifference to race is the only constitutionally permissible means to achieve racial equality in college admissions. That interpretation of the 14th Amendment is not only contrary to precedent and the entire teachings of our history, but it's also grounded in the illusion that racial inequality was a problem of a different generation. Entrenched racial inequality remains a reality today. That is true for society writ large and more specifically for Harvard and the University of North Carolina. 
to institutions with a long history of racial exclusion. Ignoring race will not equalise a society that is racially unequal. What Do you know what I, was... find, I find interesting about that, though, is it doesn't seem that directly aimed at the question, right, that Grutter poses, which is the interest in the diverse student body in the educational sense. Mm. It seems more aimed at another kind of policy which seems more meritorious to me, which is achieving substantive equality across society. And a lot of the minority judgments, although I think there's only two, they both seem concerned with that. But that doesn't quite seem to be the question that everyone was sort of fighting over. Mm. Isn't there a problem of fact, though, which is that it's all well and good except for the Asian students? Uh, right? Like, you, I, I, well, I agree with the sentiment. Like this is what like, said about that. She yeah. said, race-conscious holistic admissions that contextualise contextualize the racial identity of each individual allow Asian Americans Asian American applicants who would be less likely to be admitted without a comprehensive understanding of their background to explain the value of their unique background heritage and perspective because the Asian American community is not a monolith race con race conscious holistic admissions allow colleges and universities to consider the vast differences within that community except it will mean that some Asian Americans with very high marks will slip down past the admission point. But also that yeah. there was a systematic there was a there was a percentage reduction, right? Yeah. So it's not just the the reality is that somebody was making a choice about people who came from Asian countries mm. or from Asian backgrounds. And that's systemic racism. Mm. And that's the I, I mean, I don't think there is a satisfactory solution because I'm of the view that there is a need. Like, it's hard to break to walk to walk into a room full of people who are all the same and you're different. Like, there needs to be something to address that. Mm. But obviously, what they were doing wasn't working. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. And I think the majority judgment is at least at least recognises that, whereas the, I don't think the dissent, the dissent really properly engages with that aspect of it, the, the, the failures of what it's doing. I don't know what the solution is. So in Bug Me, we argued that, and this was the argument that wasn't accepted, right, that a, that a sentencing, that the High Court should hold that a sentencing court who sentences an Aboriginal person should take into account Aboriginality mm -hmm. as a sort of independent factor. And I remember some of the discussions we had about how would that be justified from the perspective um, of racial discrimination. And I remember, you know, talking about things like, well, what's the purposes of sentencing and how do they apply and their different purposes potentially fluctuate in terms of the weight to be given when you're dealing with a racial group that's so overrepresented, you know, might it, for example, be quite justified when dealing with a member of that group to take into account overrepresentation as more as being more likely to justify, for example, a lenient disposition simply because of group membership, and that that might be a socially worthwhile thing to do. Mm. But then the other perspective is, well, you know, wh what does group membership really mean? And what mm. do you achieve when you you give more weight just because you're a member of that group? Mm. What's and the socially useful thing about that? I think there's some similarities in the way that the affirmative action case in the US was analysed 
and Bug Me was. Because in Bug Me, there's this, that that argument that we made was rejected on the basis that it would be antithetical to individualised justice. And I think what the majority opinion in the US case focuses on is kind of this notion of individuality. Mm, yeah. Well, it's not the notion. I mean, it's one of the fundamental tenets of our legal system. Whether or not one agrees with it, that's the basis for so many things, so many aspects of the law. I mean, it's but liberal thought, right? It's, it's a premise thought, right? of liberal it's thought. Right. It's individualism. Yeah. And, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to think of another way. I think probably because all of our intellectual constructs are based on that, that idea of an individual mm. being the primary unit mm. in our society. Yeah, I really struggle with the the lack of meaningful confrontation of these really pervasive historical influences on today's reality in terms of race and that these national institutions um, don't, these national legal institutions don't give... Um, such kind of attention to them in a meaningful way. What's so interesting about that is that this judgment really paves the way for them to give more attention to that, doesn't it? In the sense that it's not the fact that you come from an African-American background that can... Mm. But if you happen to come from a background that has had the slavery as a key component of its Mm. existence and that has come through to you, the what individual. What if you can't prove it? And that's not race. Yeah. Well, well I, think most Afri- I think most African-Americans who aren't, you know, like Barack Obama, i.e. descended from an African person, who I, all the other ones are slave descendants. I think, aren't they? Maybe there's some who aren't. Jim Min's cutting in here. The Whigs did some research on this question of what percentage of people of African descent in the USA are descended from people who were enslaved. Now, the question is complex, with the material seeming to suggest that a clear large majority of Americans of African descent are descended from slaves, with such people commonly identifying as African-American. However, the population of African descent has been added to by voluntary migration from Africa, including places like Nigeria, Ethiopia and also places like the Caribbean, where slaves were also taken to and their descendants live today. The issue has become prominent in recent times with groups such as ADOS, which is American Descendants of Slavery, advocating for reparations for those descended from slavery. Now, the Whigs are far from experts on this issue, which is self-evident, but we wanted to flag it as a complex issue given that it popped up in the show. And also on a technical level, we do also note the noticeable drop in Emmanuel's microphone at this point in the show. It does appear back as to normal peak levels and we apologize for this technical deficiency it's not a question of sort of formal proof it's like tell me how that has impacted you your background your yeah. background your thinking to, mm. to that point about diversity of experience mm. you actually i mean it's like if the universities are serious about this and it seems like they are because they're litigating mm. then it's really spurring them on to doing a better job in some sense mm. So there's some great things in a lot of the judgments. So Justice Jackson uh, in Minority, she's got some brilliant passages. So she talks about, imagine two college applicants from North Carolina, John and James, both trace their family's North Carolina roots to the year of UNC's founding in 1789. 
both love their state and want great things for its people. Both want to honour their family's legacy by attending the state's flagship educational institution. John, however, would be the seventh generation to graduate from UNC. He is white. James would be the first. He is black. Does the race of these applicants properly play a role in UNC's holistic merit-based admissions process? To answer that question, a quote, a page of history is worth a volume of logic. Yeah, but on the other hand, he's the first guy in his family. The other person's the seventh. That's a pretty good basis, mm. isn't it? So I thought about Australia here in terms of what, in terms of how we do it. And I spoke to a couple of academics who basically said that we don't take into account at all race in admissions, except for some specific Aboriginal programs, which is kind of interesting because obviously a lot of our governmental processes take into account Aboriginality and create statistics and so forth. But if you think about education as, you know, this thing that sets people up for life and largely determines who gets what and all sorts of social disadvantage can flow from it or advantage. A lot of racial minorities in Australia are very underrepresented in higher education. Mm. Um, we don't seem to concern ourselves with these sorts of policies, I don't think, apart from the Aboriginal specific situation where that's kind of recognised as something in need of remediating. But I think if you walk into a lot of our elite unis, doesn't, it won't necessarily look that diverse. Yeah, is this something we should be thinking about? Is it good that we don't? I don't know. I think I don't know. I mean, I I think there are steps, at least in the law, in the law, to make us more diverse. And there are things that are in train. It's certainly a lot more diverse than when I started. And but you still, you know, you bowl up to the Supreme Court, and it's still pretty white mm. up there. It's still, you know, when I say white, I mean sort of white Anglo-Saxon, etc. Um, but I don't know. I. I it's interesting that even the sort of quote-unquote liberal justices who put into place the regime that had existed up until this point were still frightened of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They were, you know, they saw mm. the insidiousness. They saw yep. the dangers here. So, and yeah. you know, you think about identity politics in some of its extreme manifestations where, you know, in some university context sometimes and different groups where it can start to look a lot like segregation. Yeah. You know, certain groups are privileged to try to remediate things, but what does that actually end up looking like? Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.